Welcome to the Kenmore Church Podcast. We are all about filling hearts and fueling mission. We hope this content builds your heart and mind and equips you to reveal Jesus in this season of your life. G'day there. Great to have you back in 2021 now and uh, welcome to a new year. I hope you've had a great rest over Christmas. We're very excited as uh, our church at Kenmore. We've got some great uh, initiatives. We've got new staff coming on board. And, and so I really, really pray that you're rested, you're doing well, and you've, you've got yourself uh, really fixed, I guess, on the fact that you'll have a good rhythm to this year because uh, we never know what they're going to bring. And so allow ourselves to have plenty of rest as well as uh, exciting times of pressing in and doing great things with God. And so uh, today we have a different guest speaker uh, at church than myself. I've recorded this in advance. Uh, we have Sandy Bickerton from our church preaching today uh, while I'm away on a break. Um, so I'm just filling in now on the video aspect of that just to do something a little bit different. And so when I do this, I like to, what I'm trying to do at the moment is just do a few little cameos uh, with content that's come from uh, my new book that I finished off in 2020 called Refresh, which is really a talk about um, how do we have pathways into a credible experience of Christian renewal? What's it look like to partner more closely with God? What's he trying to do? And so I really spent 15 years or so uh, looking into this sort of uh, thing and experiencing renewal and teaching into renewal, uh, taking churches through an experience of renewal, all the highs and lows and the mistakes and the good parts of that. And uh, we learned a lot of stuff. And, and so I've really crystallized some of the core ideas in this book called Refresh. And we're going to be running that as a course this year. And what I want to give to you today is really the core idea of the core idea behind this book. What is renewal? What does it mean when the Spirit comes into your life? What's He trying to achieve? What sorts of things is it? Is, is it just signs and wonders we're talking about? Is it charismatic we're talking about? Or is it something, not something else, but something more? And I'll let you in on a secret. It is something more. It's something quite uh, substantively more. So let's have a look at that today. Now, we're going to start from the fact about this single question that people so often ask in church life is, uh, why is my life no different to what it was before I was a Christian. Uh, there might be aspects of the difference, behaviours, uh, uh, habits and rhythms of life. We go to church, we act nicer now, but, but I'm talking about deep down. I'm talking about the addictions, the fears, the things that make us angry, um, the things that we struggle with, the depression, the things that on a large part of our life people don't see, they don't know that we're struggling with. And within any fellowship, you'll find that there's a fairly high percentage of people that would fit this category. In, in essence, they would say, well, I'm, I may not feel or describe myself as stuck, but in reality, I'm stuck. I'm going around the same mountain that I've always gone through. Uh, I'm struggling against the same things. I'm still feeling quite inadequate to overcome them. And so this whole sense that I'm battling with the same stuff. So what we're trying to talk about here now is that renewal comes in, the spirit comes in to make a difference in our life. What is that difference? Is he just is the difference that the expectations on me are higher now that I'm a Christian uh, as opposed to a non-Christian where you're supposed to do dumb things? Is it what what is it? What is this difference? Does it just mean I have a deposit now that says, well, look, when I get to heaven one day, I get to heaven's gates. They say, okay, you got the stamp, you're in. So much more than that. Uh, but there's so little teaching, there's so little equipping into what we do about that. So let me give you uh, the core of all this. And the first step is not to do with the Spirit Himself. The first step is to really understand what has the Spirit done and to recalibrate my mind to come into alignment with that, to begin to think in a way that uh, puts me in a place to take advantage of what the Spirit gives us. Jesus said the Spirit's given to us without limit, and yet 
we are very aware of the limits in our life. So what's your problem? And the first problem is the way we think. Now, I'm not talking about self-help here. I'm not talking about think your way to a better life. I'm not talking about the fact that your thoughts have power in themselves to make you anything different other than to help you burn new neural pathways in your mind. I'm talking about your thinking, aligning your, your life and your spirit in a way that can come into step with what the Holy Spirit wants to do. So you're not out of step, you're in step with what he wants to do. Uh, another illustration is a, a one I use all the time that I borrowed from the author John Ortberg, which says we have no power in ourselves. We're like a we're like a sailing boat that's that's bobbing away on the ocean waves. We haven't got a motor. We can't get anywhere. But we do have a sail, and that sail carries no uh, power in itself. But if I can hoist my sail and I can catch the wind of God's spirit, uh, then He can blow me along. But if I don't hoist that sail, I'm not going anywhere. That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about our thoughts being us in effect raising the sail of our life to catch the wind of the Holy Spirit that's always blowing. So how do we do that? Well, the first step requires us transforming the way we think. Romans 12 2 says that we're transformed by the renewing of our mind. So again, it's not saying it's self-help, it's just saying the, the renewing of our mind puts our sail up to catch the wind of God's Spirit. And the first thing we need to transform is our sense of who we are. We need to understand I am not fundamentally who I was before. I may initially feel the same, I may act the same, but deep down my identity, uh, who I actually am and whose I am is something and someone very different. And so what we need to do is understand that perception becomes reality. If I think I'm one thing, I'm going to act like one thing. If I think like another, I'll begin to act and expect other things. And so we need to understand that our post-salvation reality is that we're not just expected to live up to a new standard. Uh, we need to recalibrate our view of ourself in that core level of identity. And our identity has fundamentally changed because of the cross. What happened at the cross when Jesus took the sin, paid the sin for our life, made a way then for the spirit to come in, into our life, it fundamentally shifts at a, at a core level who we are. Have a look at 2 Corinthians 5, 7, where Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, meaning if anyone has put their faith in Christ for their salvation. A new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. That's 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Translated, we could say in there that all things have becoming new. That's a sort of Greek, they wrap it up in a quite a complex tense arrangement. It's like something has happened, but is yet to happen or still happening. There's, there's an event that's past, there's a reality that's future, and there's a process that's going on. So all things have becoming new. So it's, it's like the door is opened, but we're still walking through it. And so um, we need to understand, well, what has changed? What has changed in me? Um, is it just that I feel better? I have more joy? What, what is that? And it's, there's no better place to explain this in depth than from Romans 7 and 8, where we get this stark contrast between um, the non-Christian self, the natural man, and the Christian person. Uh, and Paul uses quite clear Greek terms for that, which means you were a natural person without the spirit and then you, be, you place your faith in Christ, you become uh, born again, uh, a person of the spirit. And so Romans 7, if you read that book in depth, and I'm going to quote a verse or two here. Romans 7, Paul is trying to depict what life was like for him before Christ had come into his life. And he talks about it in this way, in uh, verse 18. He says, For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, my, in my sinful nature, 
For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. And so he goes on there. It's like a Frank Sinatra song. Doobie, doobie, doobie. I don't do what I want to do and I, don't, I do do what I don't want to do, you know. And, and, and it's, it's, it's hopeless. And you can read Romans 7. And if you feel like a, a person who's a Christian but can't get over their old life, this says, well, this is what I'm like. I'm still like this. And so we go, this is the inevitability of my life. I have an obligation to sin. I can't do anything about this. But we've got to understand here, Paul's writing Romans 7 as a picture and in past tense. He's saying, this is what I was like. I was I was dead to this stuff. And then he finally says, now I'm alive to Christ. Romans 8, he says, who's, who's going to save me from this body of death? That's how he finishes Romans 7, the last verse there. He says, ah, oh, thanks be to Christ, because now he's died for me and the spirit is in my life. And there are three shifts that happen. And Romans 8 depicts these three changes, fundamental changes in our life as a result of laying our faith on Christ for what he's done. We, we place our faith there. His spirit comes into our life and there are three significant shifts that happen in our life. The first one is a judicial shift. It's a shift. It's a legal shift. Before uh, Christ came, we alone paid the price for our sin. And we had no option either. We had to. We were obligated to sin. It's almost like we, we, the, the default was going to be bad and it was going to be judgment. And we were powerless to do anything about that. That's what Romans 7 is talking about there. But in Romans 8, we see this judicial shift where the scales of justice that were so heavily weighed against us have come clear because Jesus has paid the price for our sin. And so now God does not look on upon us with the eyes of a judge. Or if those judges' eyes come, they see Jesus. We're seen through the lens of Jesus and what he's done in our place. He did it as a human being for all human beings who rely on what he's done. So we then see the shift in Romans 8 verse 12. Paul says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it's not to the flesh to live according to it. He goes on to say the obligation is to something very different, is to live according to the Spirit. We're obliged to lean into him and live from him, not live for him in a failing sense as we did in Romans 7. So he's saying we're now free from the past. We're able to choose. Not only is the penalty gone, but so is the obligation to that old life. And so he empowers that which he commands. So the, the, that which was impossible before now becomes inevitable because of the, of the judicial shift that's happened in our life. And this is huge because now God is no longer separate. God is no longer primarily our judge telling us what to do from afar. And, and this changes our relationship. It changes the way we see ourselves and, and our meaning for life and what we strive for. And what this does, this, this key shift, and each one of these three shifts addresses a core human need, an unseen uh, but hugely felt need in our life. And this one, this judicial shift, um, addresses a core human need for freedom, the human need for liberty, to be free, to, be, to have the chains of bondage taken from me. You'll know any culture that's been under the bondage of slavery, of, of physical slavery, emotional slavery, and so on. The human spirit will do anything to be free from that. And sin is no different. We don't feel it so much in the West because we don't, we haven't usually, most of us experienced uh, uh, bondage and slavery. We hear about it in the press and so on. But, but our life is free. We choose to do what we want. We can become anything we want to become and so on. And yet we're still as much in bondage to sin as anyone else. And we need this freedom. We need to recognize this, this obligation to sin is gone now. I'm free. The handcuffs are off. I'm free. Not only has the price been paid, but I'm free not to go there anymore. 
And this addresses this human need. But so the trick is, how do I put my sail up to have that need truly met in me? This becomes the key issue. It's not the fact that we love to nod our head and say, that's fantastic, amen, thank you, Jesus, I'm free, and then go down the road and act like we're in bondage again. How do we activate? Because that which is available to us is not automatic. It doesn't mean we automatically live in this freedom, even though it's available. So we need to activate. And so everything in this New Testament life is a partnership. It's a partnership between us and the Holy Spirit. He's the powerful one, we are not. And yet we need to partner like a dance with the Holy Spirit in living out that which is available. And so the way that we do this with freedom is to really activate our God-given uh, volitional capacity. That's our capacity to choose. I'm talking about free will. You've been given free will now. That obligation to sin is gone, crystal clear in Romans 8. And so we now need to exercise our own free will, the freedom to choose. And so salvation, this freedom that we have, is not freedom to do whatever we want. It's freedom to choose what is right to do. And so we, we can exercise that volitional capacity to do that. What we're doing is, is living in faith through the, to the, into the power of the Holy Spirit. We're choosing to rely on Him to give us the strength we need um, to live the way He's called us to live. Incredibly profound step there. Understanding how to live by faith is one of the biggest missing keys in modern Christian life. We just keep doing things in our own strength, trying harder and harder based on the sense of obligation that we have. But we're not supposed to be doing it that way. We can live the life we're called to live by leaning into Him, living by faith in the power the Spirit gives us. Second shift, the first is a, a judicial shift. The second one is a relational shift, which is huge as well. Previously, our relationship to God was that of slave to master. It's almost like, God, tell me what to do. Tell me how high to jump. Tell me left or right. Whatever it is, we'll do it. Slave to master. It's a functional relationship. It's all about what we do for God. And, and the way we engage with him was based on what does my life look like externally. And Jesus comprehensively challenged that. He said, hang on, this is all about the heart, not what you do. You can be a whitewashed tomb, but inside you're like dead man's bones. And so he brings about a relational shift where the very posture of our life changes in the way that we engage with God. It's no longer an alienation or a slave-master relationship anymore. It's more of a loving child and a doting father. And some of us struggle with that because we much prefer, uh, because of the way we've been brought up, a, a functional relationship. But he's saying, I'm going to take you much deeper than just doing because this is now, it's about being, it's about who you are. Have a look at Romans 8, 15 to 16. The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live again in fear. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him, we cry, Abba, Father, Abba, meaning uh, Daddy. Uh, the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. All right, just my favorite set of verses here. But there are two key words there that he uses in this sense of the relational shift that I just talked about. First one is child and the second one is son because there's quite a clear difference in in the greek and hebrew context in which he's written it those things meant very different things to be a child to be a son let's talk about what it means to be god's child it's it defines our relational identity with god as being in his family so we've literally been brought in like a foster child we've been brought into his family he's put his arms around us as if we were always there and so our identity, our last name is now his last name, so to speak. It's like, now you're not just a visitor here. You're not a slave here. It's not about a function. This is family now. You're his child. It's incredible significance of that. Because ultimately, uh, our default as human beings is we get our identity from who we perceive our father 
thinks us to be. There's a great link there. So if we think our Father thinks well of us, there's great affection there. We think highly of ourselves. We think of ourselves as beloved and so on. And so who we perceive our Father to perceive us to be, that's how we form our identity. And so this is huge because he's saying, you are my child. I'll do anything for you. I'll give everything I have to you. I'm here for you at any time of the day. Uh, Incredible shift in our life. And then we have the whole idea of sonship, which is different, as I said. Because you can be a child and you can be left in the nursery at home. You can be a little toddler uh, learning how to walk. But a son in this context was uh, a non-gender term talking about our position in life. It's talking about where do I fit in society based on the family that I'm in. So it's a matter of living in the inheritance. Because back then, inheritance didn't come just because uh, the parents died and you received all the finances from that. Inheritance was about the family estate being managed. And so the father may well still be alive, but the son has come of age. They've reached a certain level of maturity. And so they can play their part in that family experience. They're given authority. And the Bible talks there about this sonship, as in the verses we just mentioned, this sonship comes about is marked by the presence of the Spirit again. So you can see every relational shift is connected directly to the presence of the Spirit in our life. He says, because the Spirit is there, you are therefore sons. Because of the Spirit, you are now able to take part in this family enterprise. And so this sonship plays a huge part. We are seen as mature now. We are seen as those who are authorized, able to take the family business on. And this leads um, to the third shift, which is a missional shift. So we've had judicial, we've had relational, and then there's a missional shift. A mission meaning out, we've been sent, we have a reason to live. Because Paul says, because you are sons, he goes on in Romans 8, because you are sons, because you have that maturity about you, therefore you are heirs. You are heirs who can run the family business now. It's not just inheriting everything later, that happens, but it's now. It's talking about the sense that we can live as heirs now. Look at what it says in Romans 8, 15, 17. It says, now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. So this whole idea of becoming an heir, it's, it's deeply significant about how we see the time that we have on this earth. It's, it takes us well beyond just, okay, well, in the meantime, between now and heaven, I've just got to get a job and get by and try and uh, reduce the amount of pain in my life as much as possible. It's saying, no, account, every hour of my day, I'm on mission. I'm in mission in my workplace. I'm on mission at home. I'm in, on mission with my relationships. I get the honor of serving God. I get the honor of being a part of something. The greatest enterprise creation has ever seen, the building of Christ's church. I get to be a part of that. I get to labor. And as Paul says, if I share in his sufferings, because there's going to be an element of suffering with that, but you can suffer with joy. There's a price that you pay where you think, I'm, I'm just so honored that I can share a little bit in the sufferings of Christ. And this, this addresses a real core need that we have of purpose. So we saw the, the needs for freedom being fulfilled. Uh, this one really fulfills the core human need for uh, to do something that matters, significance, to, to be a part of something bigger than ourselves, to know what I'm called to do, to play my part, all that sort of stuff. And so this shift, this missional shift does that. There's no reason to be depressed. There's no reason to be hopeless about what life holds. There's no reason just to be bored and say, well, this is the way life's going to be. Every moment is an opportunity to be on mission. It's, it's amazing because heirs see things very differently to what a slave would. A slave just says, well, I do what's uh, uh, required of me and no more. I don't want to do any more than that. And I expect, you know, the proper recompense for that. 
That's a slave mentality. But heirs say this, I get to invest this much in my family business because I'm a co-heir with Christ. I'm not a slave. I'm not just a laborer. I'm a co-heir. I get to do this stuff. And it's fantastic. And so this becomes freeing for us. It's a huge shift in our life and the reasons we have for doing it. The motivations for getting up in the morning, all that sort of stuff. And again, with, as with the other shifts, it's activated in a certain way. Uh, and this missional shift, this ability to find purpose is activated by our partnership of following. Our part to play here is to follow where he's leading us. He says, come, follow me. And then he sends us, he says, go that way. And Jesus lived this way. He said, I only do uh, what the Father's doing. I say what the Father is saying. And, and that's the model for us. And this is what we need to do. The way we, we raise our, our proverbial sail to catch the wind is to follow what he's doing. And that wind is a great illustration for that. We go along with what he's doing there. So the skill we need to develop there is to listen, to watch, observe, to say, what, what is God about? What's he doing? How can I join in? What's he doing in the life of the person next to me? What's he doing in my workplace, in my church? I want to be a part of what he's doing. What's he saying to me now? Is, is God whispering in my heart uh, something for another person? Is there a, a word of knowledge? Is there a blessing I can release? Anything like that. And so we begin to learn and exercise over weeks and months and years and a lifetime how to get better and better at following. It always starts small, but um, you, you can grow. You exercise this ability in us. And so he's the one doing all the work. Uh, we're just following what he's doing. We carry no power in ourselves. He's a powerful one, but we cooperate. If he wants to bless someone, it's our hand that's laid on them in faith that God's hand is releasing what only he can do. And so we activate this by following Christ. So there are these three heart markers. This is the core of renewal. This is what God's doing. This is what the Holy Spirit's doing there in your life. We often wonder, well, he's there, but what's he up to? This is what he's up to. He wants to activate in our, in our hearts uh, freedom and purpose and that close relationship with him. He wants to sh make these shifts in our life. And so the markers of our life, how do we activate this renewal? How do we cooperate with him? We have faith in him. We exercise our free will in him and we follow what he's doing. Refresh, the book, is all about these three things. Essentially, we, we go a full-on deep dive into all three of these aspects, and then we talk about what are the ramifications of that in life? Where do signs and wonders fit? Where does all the other stuff fit? And so we, do, we go there and we talk about real pathways where you can experience renewal in your life. So feel free. We're going to be running it in our church this year, and uh, we look forward to other churches joining us with that as well. Um, there'll be all sorts of uh, notifications online for that. And so my prayer for now for you is that your heart in 2020 as we kick it off is for renewal for your heart to be renewed to go into the, this year coming uh, a different way to what you did last year because we can't just say well i'm just going to cut off everything and start afresh what, what are we going to start afresh this is what we can start afresh we can have renewal in our hearts so let me pray for you and then we'll let you go for your day father i just pray that renewal would be the heartthrob of each christian watching this and even for unbelievers, that they would long to have the fellowship of the Holy Spirit that Scripture talks about, that changes our life significantly. Lord, I pray you would just uh, send the fullness of your Spirit into each person's life, restore hope and faith and freedom and following in them so their life would be markedly different in 2021. Bless them in Jesus' name. And I bless you too. Have a great time. We'll see you soon.